Our Old Testament lesson comes from Isaiah chapter 44. Hear now the word of our God from Isaiah chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment, to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. 
who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is the word of the Lord. You'll notice in the discussion of the tree being turned into an idol that shortly thereafter, the prophet says, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. Because no longer will there be trees turned into idols, so the trees will rejoice that they are not being perverted from their proper purpose. Thanks be to God. Now, as we will be looking in First Thessalonians, we'll, we'll hear how Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, nowadays we don't like talking about the wrath to come. That, that doesn't sound very nice. So, so let's not talk about anything that's not nice. Let's not talk about war in Ukraine. That doesn't sound nice. Let's not talk about global warming or abortion or human trafficking. Those aren't nice. Okay. Obviously, that won't work. If we're not going to talk about things that don't sound nice, there won't be much to talk about, I'm afraid. We live in a world where things aren't the way they should be, where we aren't the way we should be. And God says that there is a wrath to come that he will judge everyone according to his deeds. And that those who turn aside from the living and true God have rebelled against him. So uh, we should probably pay attention to the wrath to come. Because if we don't, then we're missing out on something rather important for our lives. And Isaiah 44 helps us get started on this because Isaiah is talking about this, the process of idolatry. And really, an idol is anything that we trust to deliver us. As verse 17 says, he, he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Now, the idolater in the ancient world knew very well that this piece of wood is not my God. They, they build the idol, they construct, they craft the idol as a representation of their God. And so when they speak to the idol, they're speaking, in a sense, through the idol to the deity that it represents. But Isaiah says, he feeds on ashes, after all the same piece of wood that was used to make the idol, half of it was burned in the fire. And the idol is fundamentally the same piece of wood. You're trusting in something that cannot sustain your trust. Idolatry is fundamentally built on lies. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And our problem is that our hearts are deceitful. And so it's really easy for us to believe lies. And when we believe lies, is there not a lie in my right hand? Well, I'm looking at my right hand and I'm seeing the thing in my right hand. Of course it's not a lie. It's the thing. But that's what our hearts do. And I could just ask you, you know, what is your situation right now? And what is it in that situation that you are counting on to make that situation better? 
And I know, and I'm the same way. We all know the right answer. Jesus! Good. Hold on to that one. But then, in the moment, I got a better answer because Jesus is taking too long. Well, that's why we're now singing Psalm 115 in response, because the Lord is our help and our shield. And so when we are tempted to say, I know better than Jesus, we should always come back to the Lord is my help and my shield. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. I, I want to actually start right there at the very end of the chapter, because this is the heart of Paul's message of the gospel, the good news of what God has done to save us and to deliver us from the wrath to come. Uh, Paul says it this way. We are waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the Son of God from heaven. The focus here is on on the kingship of Christ. God had promised David that his son would sit on his throne forever. David's throne was a, a picture of God's throne. Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of God the one who joins God and man in one person and so sits on God's throne forever. Brothers and sisters, this is something to get excited about because one who bears our nature, one who shares our humanity is sitting at the right hand of the Father. If you think about all through the Old Testament, there was no way for humanity to ascend up into the heavens. Moses gets to the top of Mount Sinai, and he sees the glory of God. And that's as far as he gets. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year and no higher. Every time man meets with God in the Old Testament, it always happens on earth. Even Isaiah and Ezekiel in their visions remain firmly fixed below the heavens. How can man reach God? They tried in the Tower of Babel. 
that didn't go well either. (laughs) But now, there is a man from heaven. How'd that happen? The Son of God is the one seated in glory in the heavenlies because he was raised from the dead. And that's the second thing Paul says here. Whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection is at the heart of Paul's gospel because it's something that all through the book of Acts, every sermon focuses on the resurrection. Acts 13, 32, and 33. We bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. In Acts 17, when he's preaching to the Thessalonians, Luke tells us that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The resurrection is at the heart of Paul's message when he arrives in Thessalonica as he's preaching the good news in the synagogues. And Paul, likewise, throughout his epistles, shows the centrality of the resurrection. I mean, I could go on for sermon after sermon after sermon on this passage after passage after passage. It's everywhere in Paul. Because as just to use one example, at the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1.4, Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the declaration by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God in power. Jesus is the Son of God from heaven. And we know this because God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand above. There is now a man. There is now one who shares our nature, sitting at the right hand of God. This blows every, every mind. This is sort of all through the Old Testament. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, all we can get is Jerusalem. That's a, Jerusalem's not a very impressive mountain. Mount Zion, the earthly mountain, not a very impressive mountain. Lots of more impressive mountains throughout the Middle East. Where is Jesus? He ascended the heavenly Zion. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. The wrath to come is is an image that scripture uses to refer to the coming judgment. And this is also where Paul is working out his theme of hope in 1 Thessalonians. Because Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And what is it that drives you? What is it that motivates you? Hope is, throughout the scriptures, hope is that which is what we're looking towards, what we're looking forward to. And so often our our hope winds up set on temporary things. And now, it's perfectly fine to say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's perfectly fine. I, you know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, but, but that's not something that I'm banking on for how I will live my life. <laughs> how do you live your life? And you, when you go through the challenges and trials of the coming week, what is the hope that drives you? What is the hope that motivates you? We saw, we saw last time that first Thessalonians was written to a church that's only a few months old. Paul had been hurried out of the city due to threats from the Jewish community. So he's eager to communicate with this fledgling group of believers. And, and partly because of 
of how young this group of believers is. He, he thinks it's really important that they need to hear some things from him in the way that he has been teaching. And at the heart of his concern is to encourage the Thessalonians to continue in faith, hope, and love. And we saw this last time of the importance of the way Paul weaves these together. And we'll see it more tonight today because, because Paul is continuing to use triads in his epistle that will connect back to faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love will continue. And I think we'll see this as we keep going First Thessalonians. Faith, hope, and love will continue to be the driving force behind what Paul is communicating. If you think about the importance of faith, I mean, faith is, is our entrance point into the, the kingdom of God. And love is what will endure in the end. But what is it that helps us, keeps us focused in the middle? It's hope. As we have a hope, we have a vision of what God is doing. And that's at the heart of what Paul's doing in First Thessalonians. Your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is what you hold on to when your world is crashing down around you. What is your hope? If you're motivated by what I can get or how I feel, then my hope, the thing that drives me, is centered on myself. And self-centered hopes will always fail. But the one hope that will not fail is the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope says, yes. He is the one I am longing for. That's what I'm looking forward to. And so I keep on believing God in my work of faith. I keep loving God and neighbor in the labor of love because of my steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we also saw last time in verse 5, the, the second triad, how the word came to the Thessalonians. The gospel came to you in power. So the power, the ability to carry on the work of faith in the midst of trial and suffering. The gospel comes to you in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who comes to you as the presence of the God who is love, that you might continue in your labor of love. And the gospel comes to you in full conviction, full assurance of that hope, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And and that's what sets us up for verse 6. Because in verse 6, we, we see again the importance of Paul's use of the first-person plural. In, in many of his epistles, he uses first-person singular. I, Paul, say this to you. In First Thessalonians, it's practically all plural. We. And the reason for this is because he's writing this with Silas and Timothy. Silas and Timothy had spent the, the intervening weeks in between when Paul had been there to, and to the present. He, they had been there in Thessalonica. And so they have firsthand experience of what's been going on in Thessalonica. And so now they have come, and it sure looks like, from the way Paul writes this, that he's relying heavily on their experience among the Thessalonians. And so as he's, as he's speaking here, he says, you became imitators of us. Paul doesn't just say, and me, but he says, imitators of us, of Paul, Silas, Timothy, the, the whole, you might say, traveling presbytery and the, the, the entourage that Paul traveled with. And so Paul highlights the plural. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is how we are called as, as your elders to walk before you. It's not just imitate me. It's imitate us as we seek to imitate Christ. Which, of course, the way that Paul says this, it's, it's not just a top-down thing. It's actually, it goes out. It's not just 
it's not just a, it, because Paul talks about how you have, you have become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you have received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's not just starts at the top, goes down, and stops there. No, it's actually turn it sideways. It's going out into all the world. It's because when you become an, imita- an imitator of us and of the Lord, then now you are making disciples and bearing witness to Jesus in your life and testimony. And just remember, that's a plural, you, like Jacob said in Sunday school the other week. Putting on the whole armor of God is something that we do together. Imitating Christ, bearing the cross, is something we do together. Now, it's hard. And none of us are very good at this. As Americans, we are trained to be individualists. When I was in college, I was bemoaning American individualism one day. And a friend of mine said to me, that's funny, Peter. You're you're the biggest individualist I know. Right. This is how we tend to be. We tend to all think in terms of me, myself, and I. But what is God doing in when you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, what is God doing in your affliction? What is God doing in our affliction? Because it's not just individuals off by themselves doing their own thing. It's in our affliction. What is God doing in our sufferings, in our trials? David Pallison said it this way. He was talking about cancer, but it applies to everything. Suffering really is meant to wean you from sin and strengthen your faith. If you are godless, then suffering magnifies sin. Will you become more bitter, despairing, addictive, fearful, frenzied, avoidant, sentimental, godless in how you go about life? Will you pretend it's business as usual? Will you come to terms with death on your terms? But if you are God's, then suffering in Christ's hands will change you. I love how he puts this. Always slowly, sometimes quickly. Always slowly, sometimes quickly. What? Yes. It's always a slow process. Now, there may be certain things that go quick, but always slowly, sometimes quickly. You come to terms with life and death on his terms. He will gentle you, purify you, cleanse you of vanities. He will make you need him and love him. He rearranges your priorities so first things come first more often. He will walk with you. Of course you'll fail at times, perhaps seized by irritability or brooding escapism or fears. But he will always pick you up when you stumble. Your inner enemy a moral cancer 10,000 times more deadly than your physical cancer. Your inner enemy will be dying as you continue seeking and finding your Savior. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is very great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. That's what God is doing in your plural suffering, our suffering. There may be many other things as well, but at the very least, God is conforming you to the likeness of his son. 
And that's why Paul adds, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice he does not say that you received affliction with joy. You've got to get your prepositional statements correct here. You received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit in much affliction. You can put those in either order. In much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's that you received the word. It's a, a point that Paul will write later to the Corinthians. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The joy of the Holy Spirit is at the heart of the unseen things. Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not just sort of some vague nebulous power or force. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the coming of a person. The coming of the third person of the Holy Trinity who has come to dwell with us. The joy of the Holy Spirit is the joy that comes because the Spirit himself has come. Because God has come to dwell with us. Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ with his people. So what happens when you look to the things that are unseen? What happens when you fix your eyes upon Jesus and by faith see him who sits at the right hand of the Father? Again, I love Paulison's way of saying this. Our, our culture is terrified of facing death. It's obsessed with medicine. You can hear the language of idolatry from Isaiah 44 that Paulison's using here. It idolizes youth, health, and energy. Our culture tries to hide any signs of weakness or imperfection. You will bring huge blessing to others by living openly, believingly, and lovingly within your weaknesses. Paradoxically, moving out into relationships when you are hurting and weak will actually strengthen others. One anothering is a two-way street of generous giving and grateful receiving. Your need gives others an opportunity to love. And since love is always God's highest purpose in you, you will learn his finest and most joyous lessons as you find small ways to express concern for others even when you are most weak. A great life-threatening weakness can, can prove amazingly freeing. Nothing is left for you to do except to be loved by God and others and to love God and others. And that is Paul's point as, to, as, the, as the Thessalonians have endured great affliction in, and with the, the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice what, what happened. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. When we respond to affliction and suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit, we become an example as we imitate our Lord Jesus. Now, the word example has the idea of becoming a model or a mold. Just a question for the children. Have you ever, you ever used a, a mold to make cookies? Yeah, maybe to get a star, little star mold or a little circle or a little doggy mold. You can make a lot of cookies with a single mold as you stamp out each cookie. And you can make some cookies out of gingerbread and some cookies, I mean, all different kinds of cookies, but each cookie winds up having the same shape. And for the Christian, 
That shape, that pattern, that mold is the pattern of Jesus. When we live in the pattern of Jesus, when we endure the cross faithfully, we become an example, a model for others. And, and notice, notice that Paul doesn't say you become models for others. There's only one model. You become a model for others, an example. When we live in the pattern of Jesus, we demonstrate in our actions that the gospel is true. And he says that you, you plural, became an example, singular, a model, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice, Paul couldn't do this by himself. Paul did this with Silas and Timothy and the rest of their traveling company. The Thessalonians do it together as a church. It is what we must do together at Michiana Covenant. If we try to do this singly, if we try to do this individually, we will fall into the trap of American individualism. We have to demonstrate that the gospel is true and walk together in the pattern of Jesus and thus become an example to those around us. Uh, part of why this happens, you might say, strategically in, in Paul's case is because Thessalonica was one of the leading cities in Macedonia. And so whenever uh, this, was, this was the economic hub of the region. And so people are constantly coming to the city and then going out from the city to the, the surrounding area. And so as people come to, to Thessalonica, they see and hear the Thessalonian church and what the Thessalonian church is saying and doing in these few months I mean, again, it's maybe 18 months at most since Paul had left Thessalonica. So in 18 months, the gospel spreads throughout the whole of Macedonia and Achaia. The whole doesn't mean every little village. It means all over the place. And so when they began to bear witness to Jesus in Thessalonica, notice what happened. Verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul's like, I, I almost don't even need to preach. I mean, everybody, people are just showing up and saying, hey, we've heard about the faith of the Thessalonians. Can you tell us more? That's, they don't have social media in those days. There's no Instagram post. Word spreads by word of mouth. And so as, as, the people, the Christians, this small group in Thessalonica, as they bear witness to Jesus, people everywhere are hearing from them. And verse 8 says that the word of the Lord has sounded forth, has resounded throughout the region, uh, rang out. Uh, this word is used in Greek literature for ocean waves, the blowing of trumpets, or the uproar of a crowd. This is a big, loud noise that has gone forth from Thessalonica. One commentator puts it, is, it seemed to reverberate through the hills and valleys of Greece. And so whenever Paul shows up in a new city, people come to him and say, we've heard what you taught the Thessalonians. Tell us more. Now, this sort of thing still happens. I'm just yesterday I had some friends over uh, for dinner and it was Mikhail and Jordan Cooper and their family. And when... We, there was a day that I showed up at a, uh, at a church on the west side of town, and there were, there were eight young black people sitting in the room, and they were there because they wanted to hear Jesus. Now, 
when I walked into the room, I saw the looks on their faces. There was definitely a bit of a, okay, what's this white guy doing here? But when they saw Monte and Mikhail, they had seen Monte and Mikhail's lives changing. And so when Monte and Mikhail said, you should listen to this guy, they were willing to listen. You see, that's what happens when the gospel goes forth, when we are changed. What happens is that, actually, it's something that uh, over the years we've done this occasionally, like to do it more often. If you have neighbors, if you have friends who are sort of asking good questions and they're seeing in you the, the gospel, let's, let's do neighborhood Bible studies focused on people who aren't part of Mishana Covenant. And say, hey, I got some friends in my neighborhood who they might be willing to they might be willing to, to, to read the Bible together and talk. Well, let's let's do that because that's that's how the gospel spreads and grows as it goes. It's not just a top-down model, but it's a it's that this pattern goes forth to the ends of the earth. When our life has been transformed by the gospel, because. So maybe, maybe, maybe we should say, when y'all's life has, it just say, if your life, well, that's some individual. It's this whole thing about English not having a you plural. But when y'all's life is transformed by the gospel, when our life together has been transformed, then the people around us will be ready to hear. Now, whether they come to church or not, they'll be able to see it. Because they see the fruit of the gospel in you. They see the fruit of that life together in Christ. And at the heart of this life together is the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul mentioned in verse 3. Now, he doesn't use the word hope in verses 9 and 10. You may have noticed he does use faith and love here. There's, uh, but, but now he says, he says the idea here is very much about hope. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God. The, the Thessalonians' present is described by their turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, we'll talk about the hope that motivates this in just a minute, but what does Paul mean by turning to God from idols? Turning to God from idols is not just a matter of preference. In the ancient world, it has tremendous social and economic consequence. We saw last time from Acts 17 that the Thessalonian congregation had a few Jews and many God-fearing Gentiles, namely Gentiles who had been connected loosely to the synagogue but had not converted to Judaism. And now the Thessalonians have been ostracized by the Jewish synagogue, ridiculed by their Greek neighbors, and in the first century, that's more than just a social problem. In the Roman world, your economic well-being depends on your social network. For a Jew, the synagogue is the center of your economic and social life. For a Greek, your patron is the center, and your patron will host occasional gatherings at a pagan temple, and you are expected to show up and participate. So... Think about when Paul said much affliction in verse 6, you received the word in much affliction. What does that mean? Well, that pagan feast that your patron invites you to, that's probably something like the uh, celebrating the, his, his son's coming of age 
at the, at the, tape, at the temple. And you're not going to show up for your patron's son's coming of age? Hmm. That's how you treat me, is it? Well, then, when you have trouble, I'm not going to be there for you. But patrons are supposed to be there for their clients' troubles. Patrons are supposed to be there. If you're in trouble, your patron will take care of you. Well, if you don't take care of your patron, your patron's not going to take care of you. Just think of all those mafia movies you've ever seen. That's what the ancient world looked like. Every, every, every patron is his own little mafia. That's where the mafia came from. And that's what... Paul's hearers are experiencing. My social network, my economic network is collapsing. When, you know, I used to be in good with my patron. And ever since I stepped away from showing up at, at the temple, now he's not giving me those good contracts that he used to give me. He's giving them to somebody else. I'm still technically in his network, but I'm one of those people on the fringe of the network. And if something happens to me, he may or may not help me out. Much affliction. If you have turned to God from idols, then you will feel it. I mean, we oftentimes focus, when we think about the ancient church, we often have to focus on, on when, when Christians are getting killed. But most of what they experienced in Paul's day was the petty economic social persecution. But that petty economic social persecution adds up. And why would you put up with this? Why not, why not follow Jesus and continue networking at the idol feast? And that's where hope comes in. What is your hope? To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We'll, we'll hear, you hear more about the social and economic issues in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Here he gets right to the point. Why are you enduring this affliction? Why are you suffering from your countrymen? Because you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And again, we have one of these triadic structures, just like the faith, hope, and love in verse 3, just like the power and in the Holy Spirit and in the full assurance of verse 5. So here, you turned to serve and to wait. Think about what those verbs do. You turned. You turned to God from idols. That's the expression of faith. You turned to God from idols. You believed the word. And you served. Serving the living and true God is the expression of love. And you are waiting for his son from heaven. That's the expression of our hope. A, a life that is characterized by faith, love, and hope will be characterized by turning to God from idols, serving the living and true God, and waiting for his son from heaven. Now, waiting might sound rather passive, but it's not. What does it look like to wait for God's son from heaven? If you are waiting for him to come, what will you be doing? Well, you ever had a, you ever had a, a dear friend come for a visit who you hadn't seen in a long time? What did you do in, as you were waiting for your friend to show up? 
Were you just sort of like sitting there twiddling your thumbs going, hmm, I can't wait till he gets here? Well, I, probably not. You were probably thinking like, okay, uh, what does my friend like to eat? I want to make sure we have the right thing. You know, or what does my friend like to do? Let's make sure we have some that ready. Oh, and the guest room is kind of a mess. I, I don't want my, my friend to sleep on dirty sheets. That, that, that's just what we do for ordinary friends when they come for a visit. If we are waiting for God's son from heaven, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come, then our waiting for him is hastening his coming, is seeking to bear witness to, to him and to encourage others to be ready for his coming because he's coming again. And so our witness to, to, to him, if, if, we are, if, we, if we believe he is coming and we, want, we long for his coming, then we long for those around us to hear him, to know him, to also be eager and ready for his coming because that's what our Lord Jesus calls us to be about. So yes, we are waiting for him, but our waiting for him is being eagerly about his business as we make disciples of the nations.